It is about trust. Amen. Please find your way. Romans chapter nine. Did you put on your super suits? Anyway, did you rely on God and the power of God to get through this week? Did, did you really trust in the power of the Holy Spirit as we talked about last week? We should because we are supers, right? We are supers because of the love of God, but without God, we're not. Without God, we're not supers. We're just walking dead men, dead in our trespasses. But with God, we have an incredible power source that is the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and direct us to do the good works that God has set before us to do the will of God. You know, many ask all the time, what is the will of God in my life? Well, the best way to answer that question is to begin with this question. What is my purpose in life? Why was I created? The scripture tells us that we were created to have a relationship with God. So the purpose of man is, the chief end of man is, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, how does Jesus tell us to glorify God? He says in Mark, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty easy. Two sentences. No? Not so easy? No. But the good news is, with the Holy Spirit, we do have the power to do what God calls us to do. We have choices in life, believe it or not. And if we choose to be filled with the spirit of God, then we know we have the power to love God. If we choose to be filled with the spirit of God, then we know we have the power to love our neighbors. You know what I've noticed? I'm not sure if you have. We don't need some special power to love ourselves. That just comes naturally. That's not a problem at all. I could do that real good. <laughs> But that's why selfish pride rears its ugly head so often. So often it does that. But loving God and loving your neighbor is the best way to defeat selfishness and pride. Amen. Well, as we saw last week, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit and he and he had love for God and his neighbor. So let's read chapter nine, verses one through five here in Romans. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And as we saw last week, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, is doing the good works that God had set before him. Remember what God told Ananias about Paul. But the Lord said to him, he said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of God. Paul was a chosen man, but was, was a man chosen by God to carry the good news, to carry the gospel to the world. You know, we have more in common with the super apostle than we think. You know, I believe that Richard Mills, being faithful to God, doing the good works that God had set before him, went to Rob Barton to share the gospel with him in order that I would carry the gospel into the world. Guess what? 
the same thing happened to you. Everyone here, the same thing has happened to all of us. If you are a child of God, then you are a chosen instrument of God to carry the gospel into the world. This job is not just for the professionals, by no means. This is a calling for all of God's children. If you are chosen by God, then you are to love God and share God's love with everyone that God has put into your life. I had some challenges this last week. I was talking with the person about this text and was talking about loving and sharing and praying. And they're sitting there and they go, you know, uh, answer me this. I felt like I was like in a Batman episode, like riddle me this, Batman. But they said, if every person that you are praying for to receive salvation were to get saved today, how many would have eternal life? And so I stood there in silence for what felt like a week. And I said, well, that's none of your business. That's between me and God. No, I didn't say that. But it really did make me do a self-examination. You know, it made me examine my love for the lost people that I know. You know, it's easy for my prayer life to be filled up with all my needs and all the stuff that I want God to fix. That's easy to do. But man, we should be praying for the lost ones that we know. We need to make sure our prayer life is balanced and be faithful praying for the ones that we know who need Jesus. So we need to be faithful in what we know God has told us, called us to do, told us to do. That's share the gospel and pray for the lost. And then we can watch God do mighty works in and through us. Amen. And that's what Paul did. He was faithful. And as we've come to this point in Romans where Paul is, he's verbally showing, verbally telling his love for Israel, his kinsmen in the flesh. And we saw last week that his actions and what he went through for his people should have been enough to prove his love. Everyone knew who Paul was. Everybody knew this guy. Everyone knew what he had been through for the sake of the gospel. Everyone knew that Paul's message that he received from God never changed. He never changed his message. The truth is the truth, whether people accept it or not, the truth is the truth. And Paul proclaimed that truth. And that's why, if you think about it, that's why when Paul gets to the end of his life, what did he say? He, you know, he said, man, I'm running a good race. You know, he stayed right on track. He didn't waver, he didn't go left or right. He just kept preaching the truth. He was faithful in what God had given him. But remember what's going on in Rome. There's a division in the church body, right? There, there's a division uh, of the Jew and Gentile. And, and that's why Paul's teaching about the unity here. He's teaching about the, the plan of God that has been set in place since the beginning. And, and Paul is reassure, reassuring the true Israelites that he loves them and that God loves them too. Just because Christ has come and that there is a new covenant, Paul wants everyone to know that God has not, let's say, thrown Israel to the side of the road you know, or throw, throw the Jews away, or that his love for them has changed. He still loves them, or that his word has failed. We'll see that later in the text. And the way that Paul sheds light on this situation is he brings up the sovereignty of God, as we will see as we work our way through this chapter. The Jews were very proud of the fact that they were God's chosen people. Remember the, the, that word chosen, because we're going to see that a lot as we work through this, too. 
But for centuries, it was a well-known fact that Israel was God's chosen people. Nobody argues that. But now in God's program of salvation and the birth of the church, they see the Jewish involvement was decreasing while the Gentile participation was becoming dominant. Remember, the Jews have been in exile from, uh, from Jerusalem. They were kicked out of Jerusalem. And when the believing Jews returned to the church, they came back to a church that had been run by Gentiles for five years. So many had come to the conclusion, you know, that God may have abandoned them. And they begin to question if God really keeps his promises. The church has exploded onto the scene. Jesus Christ is being proclaimed as the Messiah. And so the church family needed to fully understand the plan of God. You know, God chose Israel. Why? Because God chose Israel. He's God. God loves Israel. Why? Because God loves Israel. The point is God is sovereign and this principle operates in God's purposes for Israel and the church and in his dealings with the Jews and Gentiles within the church. So Paul's going to answer the question, what about Israel and does God, has God's word failed? And he does it in such a wonderful way. So I want to back back up to what Paul's saying again. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's a lot of words to say I love you and my heart hurts. But that's what he did. Why does Paul do that? I believe that Paul, since his conversion, you know, that he can't, he can't say anything if he does. Jesus is coming out, you know. It, there's no way he can say anything. So when he talks about love without you know, he, he can't do that without bringing in Jesus, the source of love. You know, when he says, I'm speaking the truth, of course, he's going to bring up Jesus. This is the source of, source of truth. This is just his life. That's the way he speaks. But Paul rolls out a triple emphasis here. So there would be no question about his heart when he speaks about Israel. He said, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience agrees. On top of that, he brings in Christ and the Holy Spirit. This is a whole lot more than just placing your hand on the Bible and swearing to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. This is much more than than an oath. You know, it, it, it is a firm indication that what Paul says is not to be doubted. When he speaks about God in Israel, do not doubt it. Paul declares he is in Christ. He says he is not lying. And then he says, he says this, he says, my conscience bears witness. Paul uses conscience to refer to that inner prompting that confirms or disapproves of one's conduct. And God laid on my heart to talk about this for a minute. We're going to talk about the conscience. The, the conscience is a very important part of man. And I believe that understanding the conscience, because we all have one, will help us in our walk with the Lord. You know, the conscience is defined as part of the human psyche, right? The Greek word in the New Testament has the meaning of of moral awareness. The conscience reacts when our actions, our thoughts, and words conform to or are contrary to a standard of right and wrong, right? Every person has a conscience. 
Paul declared back in chapter two, what did he say about the Gentiles? He said, the Gentiles have consciences that bear witness to the presence of the law of God written on their hearts, even though they did not have the Mosaic law. Paul refers to his own conscience several times in scripture. He says he has a good or clear conscience. You see, Paul examined his own words and his deeds and found them to be in line with his moral value system, which was based on God's standard. That's how it works. Paul's conscience verified the integrity of his heart. Now listen, the, the, the conscience has to mature as we mature in our walk. An immature or weak value system produces a weak conscience. But a fully informed value system produces a strong sense of right and wrong. That's why, you know, you say you don't get old being a fool. That conscience helps you do that. Maturing in faith strengthens our conscience. We, we have an example of this in, the, in, uh, in Corinthians. If you remember, Paul's addressing uh, eating food sacrificed to idols. And how does he address that problem? He points out that some of the Corinthian, some in the Corinthian church were, were weak in their understanding and believed that such gods really existed. These immature believers were horrified at the thought of eating food sacrificed to gods. Why? Because their conscience had not matured. Therefore, Paul encouraged those more mature in their understanding not to exercise their freedom to eat if it would cause the conscience of their weaker brother to condemn their actions. You know, the lesson here that Paul's teaching said, if our consciences are clear because of a mature faith and understanding, it just because we have that does not give us a right to cause the weaker conscience to stumble by exercising the freedom that comes with a strong conscience. So the conscience is a very important part of our walk, but know this, you can sear it just like we can quench the Holy Spirit. First Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons though the through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the conscience can be seared or rendered insensitive. Such a conscience is hardened. We hear that, right? We hear the hardened heart. We'll see that later in this chapter. Same thing here. The conscience is hardened and callous, and it, it no longer feels anything. A person with a seared conscience no longer listens to its prompting. That person will be able to sin and convince himself into thinking, oh, it's okay. It's all right. Kind of like justifying your sin, you know? Listen, as Christians, we are to keep our consciences clear. How do we do that? By obeying God and keeping our relationship with him in good standing. We are created for a relationship with God. So let's make sure we are maturing or nurturing it. And this is done by applying the word of God to our lives. And it's as easy as this. It's, you go around asking yourself all the time, you know, they got rid of those braces, but what would Jesus do? You know, it's, it's, it's really that simple. What would God tell me to do here? We should be asking ourselves that all the time. Those two questions will keep our conscience in check. Now, because we are believers, 
we have we should have a well-tuned conscience. Why? Because like Paul, we also have the Holy Spirit in us. And that means that our conscience is illuminated by the Spirit. That's what sets us apart from the world. So listen, youth, young men, young ladies here, when there's something that you're getting ready to do and you have doubt, rely on that gift that God has given you. If you don't have a clear conscience, don't do it. Don't do it. Seek wise counsel. Shift it out to make sure what you do is right. When you're asked to partake in something that goes against your conscience, don't do it. Listen to that illuminated conscience that God has given you. Don't fall to peer pressure. Don't ever sear the conscience or quench the spirit just so you can fulfill some fleshly desire. Do you realize how many walls we have to knock down to sin? You know? I mean, we have the word. We have the, we have godly people around us to hold us accountable. We have a conscience. We have the Holy Spirit that convicts us, and yet we can still find a way just to plow right through and sin. A heart so deceitful. So deceitful. So, Listen to that spirit-illuminated conscience, all right? Now I'm going to put that bunny back in the rat hat or shoot that rabbit, whatever you want to say. <laughs> We're done with that one. The truth that Paul speaks is what? Is that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Why does he feel that way? What's the cause of this daily pain that he receives? That he has... It's because of the rejection of Jesus Christ, because of the rejection of the gospel by the vast majority of Jews. When Paul looks at Israel, and when he thinks about Israel's glorious calling, and then he sees its rejection of the Messiah, his heart is filled with great sorrow. His heart is filled with continual grief. Continual grief. So much so that Paul makes an incredible statement in verse 3. Actually, this is a shocking statement and very extreme statement here. He says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This right here really shows Paul's deep desire to do something for Israel so that so that they could see the light, so that they would be saved, so their, their eyes could be open to the truth. His agony is so intense that he said, if possible, if possible, he was willing to be accursed and cut off from Christ. If possible, he would do that if the Israelites could be saved. Now, the first point we have to look at here is, is this. This is, a, is an impossible wish. It could not happen. Paul knew that salvation is a believer's most precious treasure and that only Christ's sacrifice, sacrificial death has the power to save, only Christ. Paul, just remember as we went through chapter 8, Paul's making that point. He said in chapter eight, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So if none of that can separate us from the love of God, then we can absolutely know for sure 
than an emotional desire of one of God's chosen children could not separate someone from Christ. Paul is speaking emotionally here, not theologically. He has love. You know, Paul has done everything except give up his salvation to show his love for his kinsmen in the flesh. There's no reason to doubt that his, that his awesome statement of self-sacrifice was the expression of a completely honest heart. It did come from the heart. Paul had the heart that Jesus spoke of in John 15, 12, and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one, no more than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And as we saw last week, that's exactly what Paul did. He was willing. And if it had not been for the love and sovereignty of God, Paul would have given his life for Israel. But he goes a little further. He, his desire is that his people would take his place in knowing God. Put ourselves in Paul's position. Think about this for a minute. Think about how he was raised, his heritage, his lineage, his incredible salvation, the teaching he received straight from Jesus himself. And with all of this knowledge, Paul completely understands, well, Paul understands God's plan of salvation. He could see all that God has done with his chosen nation up to this point. So when he looks at Israel, he knew that there was this, this small step of faith from all the past blessings that the Jews had already had to, in infinite, to the infinitely greater gift that God wanted to give them. Paul was like, you're, you're right there. Just, just one more little small step of faith. You're here. You're right there. Put all of this together and receive the greater gift that God has for you. Just one small step of faith, he would say. But, you know, that small step might as well have been one trying to cross the Grand Canyon in one step for the Jews. That didn't matter to Paul. His love for Israel was as big as the Grand Canyon, right? Good spot for self-examination. You know, you know, I love to do that. Do we have that kind of love? You know, I. I love 1 John 4, 7 through 21. I don't know if you know it, but write that in your margins and you can turn over there if you want. If you want to talk about love, if you want to know about love, these verses show the love that God has for us and why we are to love others. So beautiful to see. A great self-examination text. <clears throat> Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us the spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so also, we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear is, has fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not have love for his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So to answer Tina's question, I would say love has a lot to do with it. If anyone had a reason to hate his brother, it would have been Paul. But he didn't. Why? Because of the love of God lived in him. Paul loved because he had been given the spirit of God and God abided in him. I think the word love, I think it's 26 times I read it's used in those verses, 26 times. These are the words that we should bathe in every day. Amen. If you want to keep things in perspective, wash yourself in these words. If you want to tap into the power you need to keep running the good race, internalize these words of love every day. Love. Now, when Paul said that he was willing to be accursed and separated from God, if it would mean the salvation of Israel, it, it really showed his love to the Israelites. Yes, they should have seen that. But it should also have stirred their intellect. The Jews should have been thinking, hey, where have I heard this before? I've heard this somewhere before. We've heard about someone willing to be separated from the love of God for another. And if they had gone to the scriptures, which they knew, if they had gone to Exodus 32, 30, they would have read. Listen, this is down at Mount Sinai. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make, this is Moses speaking. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, these people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, listen to what Moses says, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses said the same thing that Paul says here in chapter nine. Moses's heart was broken for Israel as Paul's heart was broken for Israel. In both cases, Israel had turned her back on God. In both cases, God's chosen men wished they could be accursed if it meant that Israel would turn back to God. The Jews would have known this passage. They would have, as it continues in verse 33 in Exodus. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in that, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. The people knew that whoever sins 
sins against God. The people knew that God is the one that judges sin. He said, I will blot them out of my book. They knew that no man can take the punishment for another man's sin. Moses could not atone for their sin. Paul could not atone for their sin. They know that only God can forgive. And all of the and all of that knowledge should have taken them right back to Romans chapters four and through eight, right? When the key of the scripture is revealed in the text, that would have led them to Jesus Christ, the God man, to the Messiah, to the Lamb of God, the only one who can make atonement for their sins. The scriptures all come together through our Lord Jesus Christ. They would have understood that all of mankind is dead to sin, but alive in God, alive in Jesus Christ, because he is the one who can make atonement for our sins. It is through Christ that God brings in the Gentiles. It is through Christ that the church is born. It is through Christ that the Old Testament is consummated. It is through Christ that the true heirs are revealed. The Jews needed to take that step of faith and receive that great gift of eternal life that God is offering to them. So with Moses and Paul, we see two chosen instruments of God offering an ultimate sacrifice. And by doing so, their actions are reflecting the gracious heart of God. God, the one who so loved the unloving and evil world that he sent his only begotten son to provide for its redemption. This act of offering an ultimate sacrifice also reflects the equally gracious heart of the son who in obedience to the father gave his life that others might live. What Paul and Moses wished could only happen through the son of God through Jesus Christ. Moving on, Paul continues in verse four. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul tells us who is breaking his heart. He says the Israelites are my kinsmen, and he goes into all the blessings that, they, that God has poured out on them. He, he just lists out the privileges that the, the kinsmen have. He, he says, listen, first, you know, we have the adoption chosen by God because of his love. They are sons of God by adoption. God says in Exodus, Israel, you are my firstborn son. He reminds them of the glory. Paul reminds them of the glory. They, they had the divine glory with them or, or visible presence of God dwelling among them. It says that the, the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, uh, a meeting and the glory of the God filled the tabernacle. We know that the glory of God filled his temple. They were given the covenants, Paul said, plural. Think about that. Some people only think there's two covenants. No, the Old Testament records at least five. We had the Abrahamic covenant on the day of the Lord. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land in Genesis. We had the Mosaic covenant where the Ten Commandments were handed down. Then there's a reestablished covenant, 
He said, I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of our Lord, our God, but also with those who are not here today. And that takes us to the Davidic covenant. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And of course, we all know the new covenant through Jeremiah. We've said this many times. He said, I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah 31, 32. So they had the covenants. They had the giving of the law. Israel heard God's voice and received his law to govern their lives. What a principle. What, what, what a privilege to govern their lives. Paul speaks of the service of God, the priestly service in a tabernacle, which was a privilege from the Lord. Israel was given the worship ceremony prescribed for the tabernacle and the temple. How incredible. What a responsibility. They have received the promises from God and the main promise, the one that the people looked so forward to was the promised Messiah, the one who would come. And then we have the blessing of the, the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons of, of Jacob formed the foundation for the nation. And you know what we can do? We can trace the human ancestry of Christ back to the patriarchs. All the way back. Romans 1.3 says, Thus all Israel is in line to receive God's promises, and it is in Christ that all God's promises to Israel are fulfilled. That's the main point. Verse 5 says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. The promised Messiah. Jesus Christ was a Jew of the tribe of Judah, born according to the law. They have Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. This is the privileges that many of the Jews cannot see. This is the privilege that Paul is pointing them to, to the Messiah. No other nation in the world had these wonderful blessings. Yet Israel took them for granted and ultimately rejected the righteousness of God. They rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. Now we know how easy it is to judge others. We say, man, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe Israel failed like that. How can they waste all those privileges? Well, as believers, we have similar blessings to enjoy. And we can see a picture of Israel in the church. In the kingdom of God, we have adoption. We have been adopted, Ephesians 1. We have glory, Ephesians 1, 6. The new covenant in Christ's blood, Hebrews 9. The laws written on our hearts, Hebrews 10. Priestly service through Christ, 1 Peter 2. We have the Abraham as the father of all who believe, Galatians 3, and especially we have Christ. We have the Messiah. We need to make sure we understand the privileges we have. God has called us to be a light to the world, just as he had called Israel. And we need to make sure we don't take it for granted or think it's not important. 
We are chosen instruments of God to carry the gospel to the world. And as privileged children of faith, we need to make sure we have a sense of sacrifice and a commitment to the one who loved us while we were unlovable. Be sensitive to the spirit illuminated conscience. Pray for the lost and love the lost the best way possible. Share Jesus with them. Amen. Pastor.